59. Oh the drama. We find this Charles Aubrey to be the veriest angel that ever wore black trousers and pumps. The most exalted virtue of the stage island in the long run. Seen in good circumstances. And vice versa. For, in this country, one of the chief elements of crime is poverty. Hence the picture is reversed. We behold a striking contrast to scene antithetical. We are shown into a miserable garret. And introduced to a vulgar, illiterate, cockney-feed, dirty, dandified linen wrappers shopman, in the person of Tidalbat Didmouse. In the midst of his distresses his attention is directed to a, next of kin, advertisement. It relates to him and to the yacht property, and if you be the least conversant with stage effect, you know what is coming, though the author thinks he is leaving you in a state of agonizing suspense by closing the act. The next scene is the robing room of the York Courthouse, and the curtains at the back are afterwards drawn aside to disclose a large cupboard, meant to represent an assize court. On one shelf of it is seated a supposititious judge, surrounded by some half-dozen pseudo-female spectators, the bottom shelf being occupied by counsel, attorney, crier of the court, and plaintiff. The special jury are severally called in to occupy the right-hand shelf, and when the cupboard is quite full, all the forms of returning a verdict are gone through. This is for the plaintiff. Mr. Aubrey is ruined, and Mr. Titmouse jumps about, at the imminent risk of breaking the cupboard to pieces, having already knocked down a counsel or two, and rolled over his own attorney. This idea of dramatizing proceedings at Nysipreves only shows the state of destitution into which the promoters of stage excitement have fallen. The Baileys, old and new, have, from constant use, lost their charms. The police officers were completely worn out by Tom and Jerry, Oliver Twist, and C. Dot, so that now, all the courts left to be done for the drama are the exchequer and ecclesiastical, secondary sand summonsing, petty sessions and prerogative. But what is to happen when these are exhausted? The answer is obvious, Mr. Yates will turn his attention to the church. Depend upon it, we shall soon have the potent Paul Bedford, or the grave and reverend Mr. John Saunders, in solemn sables, converting the stage into a Baptist meeting, and repentant supernumeraries with the real water, hoping to be forgiven for this, perhaps misplaced, levity. We proceed to Act III, in which we find that, fortune having shuffled the cards, and the judge and jury cut them. Mr. Titmouse turns up possessor of yacht and ten thousand a year, while Aubrey, quite at the bottom of the pack, is in a state of destitution, to show the depth of distress into which he has fallen. A happy expedient is hit upon, he is described as turning his attention and attainments to a literature, and that the unfathomable straits he is put to may be fully understood. He is made a reviewer. Thus the highest degree of sympathy is excited towards him, for everybody knows that no person would willingly resort to criticism literary or dramatic as a means of livelihood, if he could command a broom and a crossing to earn a penny by, or while there exists a Mendicity society to get soup from. We have yet to mention one character, and considering that he is the mainspring of the whole matter, we cannot put it off any longer. Mr. Gammon is a lawyer that is quite enough, we need not say more. You all know that stage solicitors are more outrageous villains than even their originals. Mr. Gammon Island of course, a fine specimen of the specious. As Mr. Higgs Mr. Higgins says, it is he who, finding out a flaw in Aubrey's title, angled per advertisement for the air, and caught a tittlebatted mouse. It is he who has so disinterestedly made that gentleman's fortune, only just merely for the sake of the costs, one naturally asks. Oh no, there is a stronger reason with which. However, reason has nothing to do love. 
Mr. Gammon became desperately enamored of Miss Aubrey, but she was silly enough to prefer the heir to a peerage. Mr. Delamere, Mr. Gammon never forgave her, and so ruins her brother, having brought the whole family to a state in which he supposes they will refuse nothing. Gammon visits Miss Aubrey, and, in the most handsome manner, offers her notwithstanding the disparity in their circumstances his hand, heart, and fortune. More than that, he promises to restore the estate of Yacht to its late possessor. To his astonishment the lady rejects him, and, he showing what the bills call the cloven foot, Miss Aubrey orders him to be shown out. Meantime, Mr. Tittlebat Didmouse, having been returned MP for Yacht, has made a great noise in house, not by his oratorical powers, but by his proficient imitations of cock crowing and donkey braying, this being act ivy. It is quite clear that Gammon's villainy and Tittlebat's prosperity cannot last much longer. Both are ended in an original manner, true to the principle with which the Adelphi commenced its season that of putting stage villainy into comedy. Mr. Gammon concludes the facetiae with which his part abounds by a comic suicide. All the details of this revolting operation are gone through amidst the most ponderous levity, insomuch that the audience had virtue enough to hiss most lustily, while this page was passing through the press. We witnessed a representation of 10,000 a year, a second time, and observed that the offensiveness of the scene was considerably abated. Mr. Leone deserves a word of praise for his acting in that passage of the piece as it now stands, thus the string of rascality by which the piece is held together being cut. It naturally finishes by the reinstatement of Aubrey together with a view of Yachtin and Sunshine, a procession of charity children, mutual embraces by all the characters, and a song by Mrs. Grattan. What becomes of Titmouse is not known, and did not seem to be much cared about. This piece is interesting, not because it is cleverly constructed for it is not, nor because Mr. Titmouse dyes his hair green with a barber's nostrum, nor on account of the cupboard court of Nysipreus, nor of the charity children, nor because Mr. Wheeland, instead of playing the devil himself, played Mr. Snap, one of his limbs but because many of the scenes are well-drawn pictures of life. The children's ball in the first epoch, for instance, was altogether excellently managed and true, and though many of the characters are overcharged, yet we have seen people like them in Chancery Lane, at Masros, Swan and Edgar's, in country houses, and elsewhere. The suicide incident island however, a disgusting drawback. The acting was also good, but too extravagantly so. Mr. Wright, as did Mass, thought perhaps that a Cockney dandy could not be caricatured and he consequently went desperate lengths, but threw in here and there a touch of nature. Mr. Leone was as energetic as ever in Gammon, Mrs. Yates as lugubrious as is her want in Miss Aubrey, Mrs. Grattan acted and looked as if she were quite deserving of a man with ten thousand a year. As to her singing, if her husband were in possession of twenty thousand per annum, would to the gods he were, it could not have been more charmingly tasteful. The pathetics of Wilkinson as Cork in the suicide scene, and just before the event, deserve the attention and imitation of MacReady. We hope the former comedian's next character will be Ian, or, at least, Othello. He has now proved that smaller parts are beneath his purely histrionic talents. Mr. Yates did not make a speech. This extraordinary omission set the house in a buzz of conjectural wonderment till, the maid of honor, put a stop to it. Note. A critique on this piece would have appeared last week if it had pleased some of the people at the post office through which the news was sent to the editors not to steal it. Perhaps they took it for something valuable, and, perhaps, they were not mistaken. Thanks be to Mercury, we have plenty of wit to spare.
and can afford some of it to be stolen now and then. Still we entreat Colonel Maberly, editor of the Post, in Street Martins all grand to supply his clerks with jokes enough to keep them alive, that they may not be driven to steal other people's. The most effectual way to preserve them in a state of jocular honesty would be for him to present every person on the establishment with a copy of, Unch, from week to week. Unch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending December 4th, 1841. Official report of the fire at the tower. The document with this title, that has got into the newspapers, has been dressed up for the public eye. We had obtained the original draft and beg to administer it to our readers neat, in the precise language it was written in, the official report, Mr. Snooks says, that it being his turn to be on watch on the night of Saturday, October 30th, he went to his duty as usual, and having turned into his box, slept until he was amazed by shouts and the rolling of wheels in all directions, the upper door of his box being open, he looked out of it, and his head struck violently against something hard, upon which he attempted to open the lower door of his box, when he found he could not, thinking there was something wrong, he became very active in raising an alarm, but could obtain no attention, and he has since found that in the hurry of moving property from different parts of the building, his box had been closely barricaded, and he, consequently, was compelled to remain in it until the following morning, he says, however, that everything was quite safe in the middle of the day when he took his great coat to his box, and trimmed his lantern ready for the evening. Mrs. Snooks, wife of the above witness, corroborates the account of her husband, so far as trimming the lantern in the daytime is concerned, and also as to his being encased in his box until the morning. She had no anxiety about him, because she had been distinctly told that the fire did not break out until past ten, and her husband she knew was sure to be snug in his box by that time. John Jones, a publican, says, at about nine o'clock on Saturday, the 30th of October, he saw a light in the tower, which flickered very much like a candle, as if somebody was continually blowing one out and blowing it in again. He observed this for about half an hour, when it began to look as if several gas lights were in the room and someone was turning the gas on and off very rapidly. After this he went to bed, and was disturbed shortly before midnight by hearing that the tower was in flames. Sergeant Ephipes, of the Scotch Fusilier Chief, Fusilier Guards, was at a public house on Tower Hill, when, happening to go to the door, he observed a large quantity of thick smoke issuing from one of the windows of the tower, knowing that Major Ilrung, the Deputy Governor, was fond of a cigar, he thought nothing of the circumstance of the smoke, and was surprised in about half an hour to see flames issuing from the building, George Snivel saw the fire bursting from the tower on Saturday night and being greatly frightened he ran home to his mother as soon as possible. His mother called him a fool, and said it was the gas works. Thomas Popkins rents a back at a cat rather hith. He had been peeling an onion on the 30th of October, and went to the window for the purpose of throwing out the external coat of the vegetable mentioned in the beginning of his testimony, when he saw a large fire burning somewhere, with some violence, not thinking it could be the tower. He went to bed after eating the onion which has been already twice alluded to in the course of his evidence. Mr. Swift, of the Jewel Office, says, that he saw the tower burning at the distance of about three acres from where the jewels are kept, when his first thought was to save the regalia. For this purpose he rushed to the scene of the conflagration and desired everybody who would obey him, to leave what they were about and follow him to that part of the tower set apart for the jewels. Several firemen were induced to quit the pumps 
and having prevailed on a large body of soldiers, he led them and a vast miscellaneous mob to the apartments where the crown, and see, were deposited, after a considerable quantity of squeezing, screaming, cursing, and swearing, it was discovered that the key was missing, when the jewel room was carried by storm, and the jewel safely lodged in some other part of the building, when witness returned to the fire, it was quite out, and the armory totally demolished, the whole of the official report is in the same satisfactory strain, but we do not feel ourselves justified in printing any more of it, a concierge con, when is the helm of a ship like a certain English composer, said the double bass to the trombone in the orchestra of Covent Garden Theatre, while resting themselves the other evening between the acts of Norma, the trombone wished he might be blowed if he could tell, when it is a leak quoth the bass rosining his bow with extraordinary delight at his own conceit, reconciling a difference, two literary partisans were lately contending with considerable warmth, for the superiority of Tits or Blackwood's magazine till from words they fell to blows, and decided the dispute by the argumentum ad hominem, Dr. Magin, hearing of the circumstance, observed to a friend, that however the pugnacious gentleman's opinions might differ with respect to Tit and Blackwood, it was evident they were content to decide them by a Fraser Fraser, our weathercock, the state of the weather, at all times an object of intense interest and general conversation amongst Englishmen, has latterly engaged much of our attention, and the observations which we have made on the extraordinary changes which have taken place in the weathercock during the last week warrant us in saying, there must be something in the wind. It has been remarked that Mr. McCready's Hamlet and Mr. de Berg's chimneys have not drawn well of late. A smart breeze sprung up between Mr. and Mrs. Smith, of Brixton, on last Monday afternoon, which increased during the night, and ended in a perfect storm. Sir Peter Lorry on the same evening retired to bed rather misty, and was exceedingly foggy all the following morning. At the Lord Mayor's dinner the glass was observed to arise and fall several times in a most remarkable manner, and at last settled at heavy wet. A flock of gulls were seen hovering near Crockford's on Tuesday, and on that morning the milkman who goes the Russell Square walk was observed to blow the tips of his fingers at the areas of numerous houses. Applications for food were made by some starving paupers to the relieving officers of different workhouses, but the hearts of those worthy individuals were found to be completely frozen. Notwithstanding the severity of the weather, the nose of the beadle of St. Clement Danes has been seen for nearly the last fortnight in full blossom. A heavy fall of blankets took place on Wednesday, and the fleecy covering still lies on several beds in and near the metropolis. Expecting frost to set in Sir Robert Peel has been busily employed on his sliding scale, in fact, affairs are becoming very slippery in the cabinet, and Sir James Graham is already preparing to trim his sail to the next change of wind, watercresses, we understand, are likely to be scarce, there is a brisk demand for, bosom friends, amongst unmarried ladies, and it is feared that the intense cold which prevails at nights will drive some unprovided young men into the union, the bane and antidote. We are requested to state that the insane person who lately attempted to obtain an entrance into Buckingham Palace was not the Finsbury renegade, Mr. Walkley. We are somewhat surprised that the rumor should have obtained circulation, as the unfortunate man is described as being of respectable appearance. The Corsair, a poem to be read on railroads. The sky was dark, the sea was rough, the Corsair's heart was brave and tough, the wind was high, the waves were steep, the moon was veiled, the ocean deep, the foam against the vessel dashed. The Corsair overboard was washed. A rope in vain was thrown to save the brightness now the Corsair's grave. As it is expected that the jogging and jerking, or the sudden passing through tunnels, 
may in some degree interfere with the perusal of this poem. We give it with the abbreviations, as it is likely to be read with the drawbacks alluded to. Wherever there is a dash it is supposed there will be a jolt of the vehicle. Corsair poem. Sky dark sea rough, Corsair brave tough, wind high waves steep, moon veil low steep, foam against vast dashed, Corsair board washed, rope vain to save, brine cores grave, stupid ASA post. The morning post has made another blunder. Lord Abinger, it seems, is too conservative to resign. After all the editorial boasting about exclusive information, official intelligence, and see, it is very evident that the morning twaddler must not be looked upon as a direction post. We learn that a drama of startling interest, founded upon a recent event of singular horror, is an active preparation at the Victoria Theatre. It is to be entitled, Cavanaugh the Culprit, or, The Irish Savoyard. The interest of the drama will be immensely strengthened by the introduction of the genuine knife with which the fatal ham was cut. Real Savoyes will also be eaten by the fasting phenomenon before the audience. Never saw such stirring times. As the spoon said to the saucepan, the, of papers, chapter I having expressed the great gratification I should enjoy at being permitted to become a member of so agreeable a society. I was formally presented by the chairman with a capacious nearsham, richly mounted in silver and dark with honored age, filled with choice tobacco, which he informed me was the initiatory pipe to be smoked by every neophyte on his admission amongst the us. I shall not attempt to describe with what profound respect I received that venerable tube into my hands how gently I applied the blazing match to its fragrant contents how affectionately I placed the amber mouthpiece between my lips, and propelled the thick wreaths of smoke encircling eddies to the ceiling, to dilate upon all this might savor of an egotistical desire to exalt my own merits a species of puffing I mortally abhor. Suffice it to say, that when I had smoked the pipe of peace, I was heartily congratulated by the chairman and the company generally upon the manner in which I had acquitted myself, and I was declared without a dissentient voice a duly elected member of the us. The business of the night, which my entrance had interrupted, was now resumed, and the chairman, whom I shall call Orden, Striking his hammer upon a small mahogany box which was placed before him on the table, requested silence, before I permit him to speak. I must give my readers a pen and ink sketch of his person. He was rather tall and erect in his person his head was finely formed and he had a quick grey eye, which would have given an unpleasant sharpness to his features, had it not been softened by the benevolent smile which played around his mouth. In his attire he was somewhat formal and he affected in an equated style in the fashion of his dress. When he spoke, his words fell with measured precision from his lips, but the mellow tone of his voice, and a certain courteous empressment in his manner, that once interested me in his favor, and I set him down in my mind as a gentleman of the old English school. How far I was right in my conjecture my readers will hereafter have an opportunity of determining. Our new member, said the chairman, turning towards me should now be informed that we have amongst us some individuals who possess a taste for literary pursuits. A very small taste, whispered a droll-looking puff, with a particularly florid nose, who was sitting on my right hand, and who appeared to be watching all the evening for opportunities of letting off his jokes, which were always applauded longest and loudest by himself. My comical neighbor's name, I afterwards learned, was Bales, he was the licensed jester of the club, he had been a punster from his youth, and it was his chief boast that he had joked himself into the best society and out of the largest fortune of any individual in the three kingdoms. This incorrigible wag having broken the thread of the chairman's speech, I shall only add the substance of it, 
it was, that the literary members of the UFS had agreed to contribute from time to time articles in prose and verse, tales, legends, and sketches of life and manners all which contributions were deposited in the mahogany box on the table, and from this literary fund a paper was extracted by the chairman on one of the nights of meeting in each week, and read by him aloud to the club. These manuscripts, I need scarcely say, will form the series of the puff papers, which, for the special information of the thousands of the fair sex who will peruse them, are like the best black teas, strongly recommended for their fine curling leaf. The first paper drawn by the chairman was an Irish tale, which, after a humorous protest by Mr. Bales against the introduction of foreign extremities, was ordered to be read, the candles being snuffed, and the chairman's spectacles adjusted to the proper focus. He commenced as follows, The Giant Stairs, a legend of the south of Ireland. Don't be for quitting us so early, Felix, Ma Bouchel, it's a tearing night without, and you're better sitting there opposite that fire than facing this unmarciful storm, said Tim Carthy, drawing his stool closer to the turf-piled hearth, and addressing himself to a young man who occupied a seat in the chimney nook, whose quick bright eye and somewhat humorous curl of the corner of the mouth indicated his character pretty accurately, and left no doubt that he was one of those who would laugh their laugh out. If the old boy stood at the door, the reply to Tim's proposal was a jerk of Felix's great coat on his left shoulder, and a sly glance at the earthen mug which he held, as he gradually bent it from its upright position, until it was evident that the process of absorption had been rapidly acting on its contents. Tim, who understood the Freemasonry of the maneuver, removed all the latent scruples of Felix by adding, There's more of that stuff where you know, and by the crook of St. Patrick we'll have another drop of it to comfort us this blessed night. Wished, do you hear how the wind comes sweeping over the hills? God help the poor souls at say. Wishaw Amen, replied Tim's wife, dropping her knitting, and devoutly making the sign of the cross upon her forehead. A silence of a few moments ensued, during which, each person present offered up a secret prayer for the safety of those who might at that moment be exposed to the fury of the warring elements. I should here inform my readers that the cottage of Tim Carthy was situated in the deep valley which runs inland from the strand at Monkstown, a pretty little bathing village, that forms an interesting object on the banks of the Romantic Lee, near the beautiful city of Cork. I never heard such a cheerful storm since the night Mithun, the old giant, who lives in the cave under the giant's stairs. Sunky three West Indian men that lay at anchor near the rocks, observed Mrs. Carthy. It's Felix can tell us, if he pleases, a queer story about that same Mithun, added Tim, addressing himself to the young man. You're right there, anyhow, Tim, replied Felix, and as my pipe is just out, I'll give you the whole truth of the story as if I was after kissing the book upon it. You must know, then, it was one fine morning near midsummer, about five years ago that I got up very early to go down to the beach and launch my boat, for I meant to try my luck at fishing for conger eels under the giant stairs. I wasn't long pulling to the spot, and I soon had my lines baited and thrown out, but not so much as a bite did I get to keep out my spirits all that blessed morning, till I was fairly killed with fatigue and disappointment. Well, I was thinking of returning home again, when all at once I felt something more shall heavy upon one of my lines. At first I thought it was a big conger, but then I knew that no fish would hang so dead upon my hand, so I hauled in with fear and trembling, for I was afeard every minute my line or my hook would break, and at last I got my prize to the top of the water, and then safe upon the gunwale of the boat, and what do you think it was, 
in troth, Felix, Sora one of us knows, well, then, it was nothing else but a little dirty black oak box, hooped round with iron, and covered with seaweed and barnacles, as if it had lain a long time in the water, oh, oh, says myself, it's in raw good luck I and this beautiful morning, phew, as sure as turf, tea is full of gold, or silver, or dollars, the box island for, my dad, it was so heavy entirely I could scarcely move it, and it sunk my little boat most to the water's edge, so I pulled back for bare life to the shore, and ran the boat into a lonesome little creek in the rocks, there I managed somehow to heave out the little box upon dry land, and, finding a handy lump of a stone, I wasn't long smashing the iron fastenings, and lifting up the lid, I looked in and saw a vichy old weasen fellow sitting in it, with his legs coffered up under him like a tailor, he was dressed in a green coat, all covered with gold lace, a red scarlet waistcoat down to his hips, and a little three-cornered cocked hat upon the top of his head, with a cock's feather sticking out of it as smart as you plaza. Good morrow to you, Felix Donovan, says the small chap, taking off his hat to me, as polite as a dancing master, Marsha, then the tip-top of the morning to you, says I it's ashamed of yourself you ought to be, for putting me to such a dale of trouble, eh? Don't mention it, Felix, says he, I'll be proud to do as much for you another time, but why don't you open the box, and let me out, tease many a long day I have been shut up here in this good dark place, all the time I was only holding the lid partly open, thank you kindly, my tight fellow, says myself, quite cute, maybe you think I don't know you, but plus a god you'll not stir a peg out of where you are until you pay me for my throuble, eh? Millia murder says the little chap, what could a poor crapper like me have in the world, haven't I been shut up here without bite or sup, and then he began howling and baiting his head again the side of the box, and making most pitiful moans, but I wasn't to be deceived by his tricks, so I put down the lid of the box and began to hammer away at it, when he roared out, terror and agers, Felix Donovan, sure you won't be so cruel as to shut me up again, open the box, man, till I speak to you, well, what do you want now? Saps I lifting up the lid the last taste in life. I'll tell you what, Felix, I'll give you twenty golden guineas if you'll let me out. Soft was your horn, my little fellow, your offer don't shoot. I'll give you fifty. Mumber, a hundred. Two won't do. If you were to offer me all the money in the cork bank I wouldn't take it. What the diawl will you take then? Says the little old chap, reddening like a turkey cock in the gills with anger. I'll tell you. Says I making answer, I'll take the three best gifts that you can bestow. To be continued, why is a butcher like a language master? Because he is a retailer of tongues. The K-N-A-D-C-H-P-U-L-L testimonial. A meeting, an equaled in numbers and respectability, was held during the past week at the sign of the conservative cauliflower, Duck Lane, Westminster, for the purpose of presenting an address, and anything else, that the meeting might decide upon to Sir Edward Natchbull, for his patriotic opposition to Pikes. Mr. Adam Bell, the well-known literary dustman, was unanimously called to the chair. The learned gentleman immediately responded to the call, and having gracefully removed his fantail with one hand and his pipe with the other, bowed to the assembled multitude, and deposited himself in the seat of honor. As there was no hammer in the room, the inventive genius of the learned chairman, suggested the substitution of his bell and having agitated its clapper three times, and shouted, order, with stentorian emphasis, 
he proceeded to address the meeting, legitimate wonders and poor weirs of promiscuous poultry. It isn't often that a cheer is taken in this room for no other than harmonic meetings or club nights, and it island therefore, with uncommon pride that I feels myself in my present proud persition. Very good, and here, here, you are all pretty well aware of my familiar acquaintance with the knobs of this here great nation. We is, and cheers, for some years I've had the honor to collect for Mr. Dark, night and day, I may say. And in my mind the very best standard of a real gentleman is his dust hole. Here, here, and he's spidey of ache. You're highly, continued the eloquent Adam. You're highly by a servant in a dimity jacket. You pulls up alongside of the curb. You collars your basket. And with your shovel in your molly. Makes a cast into the hairy. One glance at the dust convinces you that for your to have sixpence or a swig of lame and table beer. It does. And cheers. A man as sifties as his dust is a disgrace to humanity. Immense cheering, which was rendered more exhilarating by the introduction of Dirk's dangle dangles, otherwise bells. But you'll say, what is this here to do with Sir Eddard? I'll tell you, it has been my very great happiness to clear out Sir Eddard, and very well I was paid for doing it. The Torres knows what jobs island and pays accordingly. Here the meeting gave the conservative costume under fire. The opinion I've informed of Sir Eddard has just been wearied, for hasn't he come forward to oppose them rascally taxes on commercial industry and fair lock fair on enterprising higgling and twelve in a tax cart? Need I say I alludes to them blessed pikes? Long and continued cheers. Sir Eddard is fully aware that.